What's cracking, guys? Your boy Daniel here from Stack Strength, and today I'm sitting down with the second installment uh, where Paul and Ed and I are going to be discussing, well, deconstructing essentially squat, bench, and deadlift. So right now we are going to be going over the second uh, lift, which is the bench press. So Paul, uh, let's just start by giving yourself a, a quick intro. Doesn't have to be anything crazy since you already kind of introduced yourself in, in the last one. <coughs> before we get going. Sure. So my name is Paul O'Neill. I am a strength coach and owner of Master Athletic Performance. Been coaching in varying capacities since about 20, 2008. Um, and I'm also an educator and own the website Coaches Corner University, where we focus on a providing a university education for trainers and coaches, trying to bridge the gap in research uh, between what you learn in a classroom and how to coach a client. So that's where I spend most of my time. Awesome. Um, so when we're talking about the bench press, it's important to understand, number one, the constraints in which we're working. So the rules of the bench press are, we'll say much more malleable than the rules of the squat or the deadlift, because depending on the federation, your foot position can vary quite a bit. There is no limit to the arch you can use and the grip width has no, um, like you can go extra wide, doesn't matter how you're built um, and you can maximize your leverages to, to any extent that you wish. So you have probably the more exotic performances of the lift on the bench press that would be akin to something like a max width like squat or like a toes to plate sumo, you're looking at a lifter whose feet are tucked all the way underneath them up to their shoulders, uh, their butt and shoulders are maybe six inches apart with their sternum straight up in the air and a max width grip. Uh, so it should be understood that as long as the shoulders and glutes remain in contact with the bench, the feet remain in contact with the floor, depending on the federation, the heels might be required to be down on the ground. And then the grip width uh, has the power ring covered if you're going out wide. So you, if the back judge is looking at the barbell, they will not, they should not be able to see the ring. Uh, and that is determined as the max width. Once that's established, uh, the lifter will have to take the bar out of the rack. They're allowed to get assistance with that and settle it in place. They will receive a start command from the head judge and lower the bar to the chest. Once the bar is motionless on the chest, they will receive a press command and they have to press in one smooth motion back to a stable lockout. And then they will be given a rack command to bring it back into the rack. What we're looking for here is that the glutes don't come off the bench, the feet don't slide out, uh, the lockout is even between both arms and there is no sinking of the barbell after the press call is given. If any of those take place or this lifter simply misses the lift, uh, it will be deemed a no lift. Now the bench press is, it's an interesting lift because it's very, very, uh, it's very, very interesting to, to diagnose what would be kind of the best way to perform the lift. There are some principles that we try to adhere to in terms of body positioning. You want the, so we'll start from the bottom up. So in the lower body, you want the knee lower than the height of the hip. 
what that will do is that will allow horizontal force to be created um, in terms of leg drive. The foot position itself will vary based on what's comfortable for the lifter. If the feet are flat, it tends to provide a little bit more stability. If the feet are tucked, it tends to provide a little bit more of an arched position to reduce range of motion, but you do trade off in terms of leg drive uh, as a tucked position will not create as much horizontal force. As we travel up, the glutes should be squeezed as hard as possible. Uh, the sternum should be pulled up. We should be in a thoracically extended position. The scapula should be depressed and retracted as hard as possible. The hand position should be determined by the angle of the elbow at the bottom. So when the bar is resting on the chest, the, what I look for is that the elbow is within the framework of the wrist. So as long as on the, when the bar is at the chest, the elbow isn't outside of the wrist or inside of the wrist, that's a good hand position and it kind of gives you some flexibility. And then when we're looking at wrist position, we wanna make sure that as you are executing the bench press, the bar is stacked on the wrist and the wrist is stacked over the elbow. So we're maintaining as much musculature underneath the barbell as we can during the execution. Everything from there in terms of like how to bench depending on hand width, uh, how to drive the legs depending on foot position, that's gonna come down to uh, a lot more of a nuanced conversation. Awesome. And as far as uh, just covering some of the anatomy goes, can you just give a brief overview of some of the uh, primary movers of the lift and, and their primary contributions? Because th this is an exercise where like, I don't know, at least speaking for myself, I'm very rarely sore in my chest. Like I get a little stiff, but after a bench session, like my back, my quads, my hamstrings, my glutes, they'll cramp up. Like I feel those a lot. So it's, it's kind of a weird uh, exercise where you are using your whole body, um, but obviously yeah. there's like specific prime movers. Right. So you're a max width bench, right? Like you're, you're benching with your index finger on the ring. Yes. Yes, that's right. So if you're a max, so the, the main pressing muscles are going to be your pecs, your triceps, your delts. The main support muscles are going to be the lats, the, the rhomboid low trap and uh, and then the muscles of the lower body that are going to provide some rigidity through the core and hips. The wider you are, so if you can conceptualize this, the wider you are, the longer your pecs will be in the bottom position of the bench. So they're in a lengthened position and they never actually shorten. So most people will say, oh, benching wide works your pecs more. Well, that's not actually true because your sternum, you, your in thoracic extension, your pecs are in a lengthened position. They don't actually reach a shortened position, meaning that the, the upper arm doesn't ab adduct, right? The upper arm doesn't come towards the midline. A more moderate or close grip is going to actually work the pecs more because it takes them through a larger range of motion and they're able to get into a much more shortened position at the top. The, the upper arm actually does abduct. It does come towards the midline. A wider grip bench press is going to involve more of the shoulders, or sorry, more of the triceps and more of the lats because the wider the grip, the more scapular stability is involved in the lift and actually the more of a slightly internally rotated shoulder position you're going to have. The more narrow your grip, 
you're going to be emphasizing the pecs, the triceps, and the delts to a larger degree because the scapula are not under as much uh, stability demand. The lats play less of a role and uh, as do the low traps. You also get into a situation where you're not going to want to be as arched the more narrow you take your hands and the more of a J stroke you'll tend to bench with. So the premise the premise there with the stroke of the bench is going to look at how do I keep as much of my body under the barbell as possible with a wider grip, the bar is naturally going to rest with the triceps, delts and pecs all in line with one another. So you'll be benching more in a straight line. If we're in a more narrow grip, if we tuck the elbows, you're going to have the elbow in front of the bar. If you keep them out, it'll fall behind the bar. So that's why you need to bring the bar a little bit lower. So it becomes actually more of a J stroke to keep that bar over the pecs, delts and triceps. So that this is why at the beginning I talked about nuance, because when we talk about the bench press, it is so dependent on the leverages of the lifter and the, and the grip width, what musculature is going to be leveraged to a larger degree. To simplify, you're going to, as a bench presser, you're going to want to have very, very, very strong triceps. You're going to have want to have very stable scapula, and you're going to want to have very developed pecs. If you can get all three of those, you'll probably be an okay bench presser, uh, or you'll be like me and have very developed all of those things and still suck at bench pressing. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a really interesting point because I think that's very counterintuitive. Um, the the lengthening of the pecs uh, because you're in you're in thoracic extension because I know a lot of people like when I when I prescribe uh, wide grip bench press for for my athletes I usually get them to do it with feet up for that yep. reason actually because it just ends up loading the muscles a lot more yep. um, but I don't know that I've ever actually explained it that way because I've always just been like oh well larger range of motion getting more time and attention, but I, I guess I've never really thought of it like that anyways, from, uh, well, as soon as you, as soon as you, yeah, as soon as you bring the feet up, you're in less of an extended posture and you're implementing some element of stability. So that the way I look at it is from the side, the height of the elbow in relation to the bench pad. Mm -hmm. So if you have a big arch, your elbow is going to be in a wide grip. Your elbow is going to be higher up on the, like higher up within the framework of your body. Whereas as soon as you reduce that arch, there's going to be larger range of motion in terms of elbow relationship to the bench pad. So yeah, you will have some abduction of that, of that, uh, or sorry, some adduction of that humerus as you bring it towards the midline. So it's, it takes it through a large range of motion. That's why I'm like, yeah. And it also depends. Are you flaring the elbows really hard when you're performing your, your wide grip bench? Because if you're flaring the elbows really hard, then you're not in a lengthened pec position. Yeah. I, I guess for, for me anyways, what was interesting that just kind of, I guess, clicked was uh, the difference in muscular contributions when you do have an arch. So you are in like a kind of a competition setup where you have yeah. your foot stance, you've got the big arch, but then going wide versus narrow, that wasn't something I really gave a whole lot of thought to from, from the, the lengthening standpoint anyways. And so that is, that is fairly interesting actually. Um, yeah. So you, you start working with a lifter. What, what are some of the key elements that you're screening for when evaluating their technique, especially because like you mentioned with bench press, there is so much 
that's going to kind of delineate what yeah. their technique should look like based on their, their leverages and strengths. So initially, like, like I mentioned, when we, when we talked about the squat, I'm just going to let the person bench. Like I'm just going to see what we're working with initially or not. There's not going to be much instruction. Um, then I'm uh, first, I'm going to look at the feet and say, are we stable? Are the feet planted? Uh, is, are we creating external rotation through the hip? Are we able to generate horizontal force into the bar? Uh, if all of that's present, we're good. I don't really care where the feet are, but I'm, I'm looking for is the, is the knee below the hip and are we able to create horizontal force? If we are, if we aren't able to create horizontal force and we're not tight through the hips, you can either move the feet wider to place a larger ex external rotation demand. You can place the feet further back to increase the extension at the hip, or you can tuck the feet all the way under the body. If you're doing that, you want to be in a position where if the heels are driven down, so, so you're on your toes, but you're trying to drive the heel down, you create horizontal force. If you're semi-tucked and on your toes, all you're going to be doing is creating vertical force through the hip. So that's, that's kind of the, the delineation there. So if you're going to tuck, it has to be as far back as possible. If you're not going to tuck, you find that foot position with the feet flat where the knee is below the hip and you're able to provide horizontal force. Then I look at, okay, where am I seeing power leaks? So in the squat, we talked about power leaks through the midsection. Typically power leaks in the bench press take place within that two inches before the bar touches the chest. So we'll see some anterior translation of the humerus forward. Uh, we will see some collapsing of the arch. We will see the elbow fall out of the stacked position with the barbell. Where is that coming from? Is it coming from an inability to engage the lats? Is it coming from an, uh, the fact that they hadn't set their arch properly? Uh, is it coming from the fact that they're still up on their trap, like they're, they're shrugging up at their traps instead of driving the shoulder blades down? Um, and then I look at, okay, as the bar is lowered, is the lifter breaking at the wrist? Are we able to keep that wrist stacked over the elbow and, and all of those things? So when I'm looking, I'm looking for where is this power leak coming from and how do I address it? Do I address it simply by cueing the athlete in a manner that allows them to achieve the positions I want? That's usually my starting point. I don't assume anyone has a weakness until I've tried coaching them first. That is probably... Like we said that about the squat, it's the same for all of the lifts, right? You, you cue them to the positions that you want them to achieve. And then if they cannot achieve those positions, then we, then we implement movements that allow them to, to train those weak points. Um, and then I would look at, okay, let's take them. Or if you don't, if you have video, you can look at past executions and look at, okay, where am I seeing the breakdowns in their technique? Um, and then look at, okay, where are we missing lifts? Are we missing lifts at the chest? Are we missing lifts at lockout? Are we missing lifts at lockout because we lost tension at the chest? Are we, you know, not able to hold tension at the chest? So we're missing at the chest. Like where, where is the breakdown? Where are we seeing the power leaks and how do we correct it moving forward? So I find with, uh, with the bench press, I don't know. Th this is my opinion. I've always found that the bench press is the most technical um, yep. because there's just like so many different key points to it. And it's like, even just your joints and the way they stack up, there's less room for, for bar variation, I guess. You know, if, if, if you fuck Absolutely. up, it's, it's way harder because 
you don't have that low bar position where you can kind of like grind it out with your back or whatever it might be. Well, you look and, at the uh, leverages, the leverages of the bench press are so dependent on that stack. Yeah. And they're also like, they're the muscles supporting that barbell are some of the smallest in your body. Like you're not able to leverage your, there's no axial load. So you can't use your strong midsection to lift the bar. Right. Um, If you're off by an inch in a bench press, you're going to perform dentistry on yourself. Yeah. Right. So uh, it, there are two kind of, there are two schools of thought with the bench press that I seem to have identified with like what I see these days. There are the very highly technical lifters who've maximized their leverages and try to reduce range of motion and bench a very A to B type of style, right? So from point A to point B. Then there are the people that are just thick as all hell and they just muscle fuck the bar, right? They have a much more narrow grip. They're about five feet thick. They sink the bar into their chest. They use a lot of horizontal leg drive and they fucking muscle fuck the bar to lock it. So those are the I'm guys you look at. Williams, right? Um, I'm you know I'm looking at more like uh, TD Smash. I'm looking at uh, you know your all-time world record holder right now. I, I apologize, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Um, Jeremy Hornstra comes to mind. Dan Green benches like that. Yuri benches like that. Yuri's got this you know, broken wrist, super, super tuck sink, and then horizontal drive to lockout. Um, it seems to be like, there's just two camps. And then you have the very technical lifters, the, the guys like, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Sean Noriega, right? Super large arch max width grip, very, very light touch to the chest, short range of motion. You know, he's a 181 guy benching over 500. That's bananas. Yeah. So, I mean, they're both, and, and even, even on the female side, you have a lifter like Hunter Henderson, who's, you know, arguably one of the strongest women on the planet. She, she's benching like 330 plus very light touch to the chest, but she's got a small arch, relatively narrow grip. She's just, she's built like a brick shit house, So she's muscling the bar up. She does stay a lot tighter though. So there's, there's two camps there and it's, there's the, the people that try to leverage the bar and then the people that try to just heave and, and muscle fuck and try to get as much momentum and, and drive as possible, use their thickness. Yeah. Hunter will always be a frustration for me. Like every time I see her, I'm just reminded of my own inadequacy. I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> she is a freak. <laughs> just, she is so strong. Mentality. And you know what? She is an incredibly kind human being as well. I've heard nothing but good. I've never had the pleasure of meeting her, but I've heard nothing about good things of what she does as an ambassador for the sport. And I think that makes me like her as a lifter even more. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I did want to touch on actually is like, the difference between, I guess, performance enhancing versus performance preventing, right? So like, I, I know with myself, I've had a lot of stability issues with my scapula. Like if you look at my build, even just from the back, like I've got really big lats, I've got big traps, and then the space between my shoulder blades, yeah. kind of rhomboids, mid trap area is just like empty. And uh, th- that's, that's been one of the reasons anyways, for a lot of the, the pec issues and the shoulder issues I've had in the past. Yeah. Lately, we've been working a lot on that, but how does that stuff factor into the bench press? Because a lot of people seem to have stability issues, like uh, like th- thoracolumbar stability issues, and then also just even uh, in the shoulder. You know, it's 
I think a lot of it comes down to how you, how you visualize the bench press as a lifter. I think some lifters try to force their grip out too wide, right? So if you're having a scapulothoracic issue and you have a max width grip, one of the easiest ways to solve that is just bring your grip in an inch or two or a finger or two, right? Because as soon as you bring that grip in just slightly, there's, there's less of, less of a demand on that scapula. Now, if we're looking at, can this lifter create tension at the chest, right? So, so we're performing the eccentric, we're maintaining our stack. And then one inch of one inch above the chest, we kind of start to see that shoulder roll forward. We kind of start to see that elbow fall behind the bar. Now we're looking at, okay, we need more low trap. We need more rhomboids. We need more of our scapulo retraction and depression. We have to remember that the lat is an internal rotator of the shoulder. So if you are in a max width grip, you have to have the lat engaged because there is a slight internal rotation of the shoulder at the bottom. So knowing what kind of grip you're going to be utilizing and knowing how to leverage the musculature to benefit that grip. If you have a narrow grip, you don't necessarily need much stability at the chest because you're going to be the amount of chest involvement at the chest is very low. It's a lot of delts. Plus you're getting a lot of momentum from leg drive for the most part. So you like, it's a game where that we're playing. What I see the most is an inability to maintain the arch. And what that is, is when the bar gets to the chest, lifters relax their leg drive, almost like they're winding up for the bench. You have to look at the, the leg drive as a bamboo shoot. So, and this is, this is something I got from Jane era. So if you take a shoot of bamboo and you push on it from either side, it'll bow up, right? So you have your traps dug into the bench and you have your feet on the other side, pushing horizontally on the body. So that's creating this arch in your bamboo shoot, which is your body. Now, when we go to press, we don't loosen the, the horizontal pressure and then press. We just give a little bit of intent into that bamboo shoot to flex it up even more. So there's no relaxation. A flexed bamboo shoot can still flex more if force is placed upon it. So we need to maintain foot pressure to keep our arch intact. And then it's simply just ramping up of foot pressure to keep that sternum high as the bar gets to the chest. That's number one. Number two is if we're getting that roll forward in the shoulder, the cue that I like to use is to, to have the lifter picture themselves pulling their chest up to meet the bar as if they're trying to bridge the gap between bringing the bar down and bringing themselves up to the bar. That, that fixes the elbow tracking issue 99% of the time. Because if they're pulling up to the bar, they're performing a row. So they're engaging their back. Once that back is engaged, it's simply a matter of pushing themselves back into the bench and the bar will come up to lockout. So those, those are the two cues, the maintaining of leg drive and pulling your chest up to meet the bar. Those are the ones that I rely on the most to fix the issue of tension at the chest. If you want to get more nuanced with it, depending on grip width, you could also coach to feel the pressure on your pinky so that you're actually pulling the bar apart to some extent. What that will do, again, like a band pull apart, you, that will engage the rhomboids in the mid-back, right? So if we feel that pinky pressure, 
then we know that our mid-back is going to be activated and we'll be a little bit more stable pulling that sternum high. Those three things, that's pretty much all you need to create a really, really stable bench. And most lifters respond quite well to it. Awesome. And as far as like, let's say certain accessory auxiliary exercises that, that you might incorporate to, to help enhance even just awareness. Cause I mean, even just speaking for myself, that was something I really struggled with for a very, very long time and still struggle with is just kind of feeling my back in the bench yep. press and feeling that stability. A lot of the times I'd be like, Oh, my lats are really tight. And then I start benching and I finish. And I'm like, Oh, that felt great. And then everyone's like, no, you completely just dumped yeah. into your shoulders at, at the bottom. And I was like, Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. So there's a few movements that I really like. So the, the floor press is one of them. I find the floor press teaches lat tension the best because if you roll your shoulder forward on a floor press, you'll dump it on your waist, right? So you, you literally can't do it incorrectly. Now, the, I also like to classify access, accessory movements into either uh, like skill acquisition or muscular performance. So what, what I mean by that is, are we looking for an exercise to teach the skill of the bench press? Or are we looking for an exercise to train the supporting musculature of the bench press? So you would look at skill acquisition as pauses, uh, tempo, changes in positioning. So like feet up or floor press. And then when we're looking at training the musculature, then we're looking at specialty bars. We're looking at close grips. We're looking at uh, all of those things that change the actual modality that we're using, but place an overload on a specific musculature. So an example there would be, I want to, a good carryover at one actually is I have trouble with tension at the chest. Okay. Let's bench with a Buffalo bar in a three second pause. Okay. But Buffalo bar puts you into that deficit bench press position, larger range of motion through the shoulder forces you to pull up harder to stay stacked. Three second pause builds isometric strength in that stretched position and then teaches you to keep the lats engaged as you press. That could be a skill exercise or it could be an exercise to build the pecs depending on how you coach it. Then we can look at, okay, uh, the Spoto press, similar movement. We're using a pause one inch off the chest to train isometric, isometric tension at the chest, teaching us to pull up to meet the bar. Those are skill acquisition exercises. Then you look at close grip bench pressing, incline bench pressing. Uh, I would say like any variation of like feet up, football bar, fat bar, uh, Cadillac bar, anything like that, that is going to overload specific musculature, either the delts, the triceps or the shoulder or the, or the pecs. I would look at that. Like, where is the weakness? Is the weakness just a proprioceptive issue? Or is the weakness an actual lack of, of supportive structure to press the weight, right? Because there are some lifters that, you know, they're just weak, right? They, they just, they, they don't have the musculature possible to create force. Mm -hmm. Those are the lifters that you're going to spend some more time doing some hypertrophy work with. And that's where you would opt for the specialty bars and things of that nature. But the bulk of the strength is going to be built through specific work. So if we can do more specific variations to build resilience in certain positions, that's always going to be the best bet. Mm -hmm. 
And so just kind of speaking for lifters who, cause I know some of my, uh, some of my smaller lifters, even the more advanced ones, like I've got a, I don't know why, but for some reason I seem to attract lots and lots of tiny elite female athletes. <laughs> like I've got way more tiny, <laughs> tiny elite athletes than I do big Jack strong guys. Uh, for some reason, just kind of always have. But, Cause you're um, so soft spoken. Yeah. So yeah. Kind. I, th- I think so. It's my kind eyes. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, they, sometimes they have like just ridiculous amounts of volume yep. that, that they have to do, like not even just spread across the week, but like within a session, even if they're benching, let's say three, four times a week, each session can sometimes be like just ridiculous volume. And, um, cause they can tolerate it, man. They, they just, yeah. have no, they don't have a lot of muscle tissue in the upper body women tend to be more type two dominant in the upper body as well, or sorry, type one, they're yep. more type one dominant. Um, and then they're also not going to be as neurologically efficient. Like they're not going to be able to recruit as many high threshold motor units off the bat. So that bodes for, we need a lot of volume and we need a lot of practice. So that's when you're just going to get into, Hey, we're just going to bench press a lot to get your bench better. Mm-hmm. And we can do that heavier and we can do that for more volume because only half of the body is under load. The only thing you have to worry about with a ton of bench volume is it beats up the lower back. So if you have these typically like smaller females will have larger arches or more like contorted positions. You just have to factor that into the overall volume of the week on the lumbar spine. That's it. So, so the one thing that I did want to get, uh, I guess your input on was distribution of volume through variations. So I I like to use a lot of top sets and then back off work. Sometimes I do fairly similar protocol as what you'll do where you'll have like top set at this, change the exercise for your back off work based on a percentage of the top set or whatever. I'm a very big fan of that, but then even still, sometimes you'll still need to do additional work beyond that. So how, how would you distribute your volume and still have it be specific enough to transfer over? I typically won't do more than two barbell movements within a day. If I need more than that, I'll split it into multiple days. So most of my females will bench three days a week. They'll have a a main bench day. That's usually paired with a secondary squat. They'll do some bench on an assistance day, like an upper body assistance day. And then they'll have an SBD day while they're where they will do like some sub maximal competition bench pressing for practice. Um, they will have one day where they will go heavier for like a top set and then some down work. Uh, and then they'll have a secondary bench variation that will usually be focused on building some muscle, but within a more specific pattern. And then we'll get into on that next day, they'll do some form of technical bench pressing. So a Spoto press floor press, uh, something a little bit more specific followed by upper body assistance volume. Usually there's some overhead pressing in that as well. Cause I find overhead pressing for female athletes does have quite a good transfer. Um, and then that next day will be the SBD day where they will do their competition bench press for, you know, a three by three or three by five, but it's some very moderate intensity. Um, that tends to be what I favor. <sighs> I think I think especially on the bench press for smaller women, the tendency is to comp bench them a lot, but I just haven't seen the carryover for me and my lifters. The other benefit to variation 
is the more variation in your program, typically the more volume you can tolerate. So if you do have a lot of, of a lot of volume that you need to get done and you're worried about recovery, just change out some of the variations to things that you feel will have carryover and you typically will get better recovery session to session because that pattern isn't getting beat down all the time. So I'd like to get your feedback on actually what you just said about the comp bench, not necessarily having as much carryover for the female lifters. Cause that's kind of something that I've noticed as well for, for my smaller lifters, whereas guys like they do four or five sets and they're like, yeah, I'm good to go. I've just increased my PR by yeah. like five pounds or whatever. Yeah. I, I honestly, conceptually, I don't understand because it would, it would make sense that specificity for that athlete would be better. Right. They need more practice. They're not as neurologically efficient. Uh, they don't have as much musculature. They should be able to recover better. I just don't see the carryover of doing that much comp benching for female athletes twice a day, at, twice a week at the most. If we're going to be pressing four days a week or three days a week, one of those days will not be a competition bench press. And the competition bench press on the secondary day is going to be very low intensity. Like it's just going to, I shouldn't say very low. It's going to be a moderate intensity, but lower volume. The, I, I place a lot of my emphasis on pressing for females in those hypertrophy rep ranges and closer to failure. And I've seen a lot of carryover, like pushing like our AMRAPs with the Buffalo bar at around 60, 70%, pushing uh, like overhead press for top set, down set, um, getting them getting them bigger in the upper body. That's where I've seen the best carryover. Like I have a lifter, I've been working with her for about a year and because of COVID, she hadn't been able to compete, but she wanted to do a mock meet. So it was the first mock meet we were able to do in a year. She ended up hitting like before in the prep, she hit a triple with her old PR. And we only comp benched her Damn. once a week. Yeah, but it, and it, you can argue with it, and I op I'm open to the argument, the way in which I've implemented it, I just haven't seen the results. So I, I can only speak to what I've done. You know what I mean? Honestly, I feel like my, my experience mirrors a lot of what you're saying as well. And I haven't really been able to come up with any good answers either. Because for all of my guys, it's been pretty simple. But uh, the amount of volume and then just kind of how you're, how you're prioritizing it, I've also found that I've had to do quite a, quite a bit of, of variation. Like I'll have, I'll usually just have like one comp bench day and then the other ones are like board press, floor press, wide grip, feet up, whatever the fuck it might yep. be. Um, and that I think be a lot more effective as well, but I, I have no idea why. And it's hard for me to, to put I think one, on. another reason they can tolerate more volume is because they tend to be more, more mobile. So they don't get beat up by low bar squats. I think that has a huge thing to do with the amount of volume they can tolerate on the bench because if you start benching a, a larger male or even a larger female that much, they're not they're either not going to be able to get under the bar to squat, which has happened to me in a couple of preps. I've been like, holy shit, I literally cannot squat today because I can't put the bar on my back. Or they're not going to be able to bench because their biceps are so fucked up from low bar squatting, which has also happened to me before. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I've definitely had... Uh... I've definitely had issues with that when I started pushing the volume a little bit more, which is, is, is kind of shitty as well, because it's like you, you need to kind of pass a certain threshold in order to get that adaptive response. But then 
unless you're healthy and unless you're doing it in an intelligent way, anytime you approach that, that, you know, close proximity to that threshold, you just end up banging yourself up. So you need to be really, I guess, picky on exercise selection and how you're, how you're waving load and volume and shit like that. So it's, uh, yeah, I think the assistance work plays a really big part too. making sure you maintain your overhead mobility, make sure you're maintaining your thoracic spine extension rotation. Those are all things that are going to help the scapula move a little bit better on the, on the rib cage. And then that should be able to get you under that squat bar. Yeah. I've definitely been finding that the longer I coach for and the, the more people that I, I, train with and just lift with the more that I value like a lot of that non-specific stuff. That's, I don't know if I'd go as far to say that it's more performance permitting, but it's, it's kind of like along that line or at the very least, like incorporating a lot more of that stuff through, through accessory stuff, you know, performance permitting. I think it's just, so it's just more friendly. Like it's easier yeah. on the body. Yeah. Uh, you, you get into this, you know, they talk about the stimulus fatigue ratio all the time. What about the stimulus to pain ratio? <laughs> like, I, I mean, I, I say that like kind of half jokingly, but it's like, well, if I do have this limitation and it's preventing me from making progress on a lift, but I can accumulate volume in a relatively specific manner that doesn't cause me any discomfort, wouldn't that be a better option than doing less of something that's more specific? Maybe. For some, maybe not for others, but I think it's a worthwhile avenue to explore. Yeah, and I, I think that would probably be a really good approach for kind of guys like myself who just tend to always go in and push way too hard. Like I think over the last eight weeks is when I've really started to scale things back and be a lot more conservative and moderate um, in like load. You were given like, too much. You were given too much leash. I've, I've, I've pulled on your leash a little bit <laughs> and, and, and I think that's what you needed. And there's a time and a place as a coach. I mean, this is a little off topic, the bench press, but like there's a time and a place as a coach where you got to pull back on the leash and let the, let the athlete know, Hey, not yet, not yet, not yet. And then when that, you know, proverbial robber opens the door to your fence and is on your property, you let the leash go and you say, Hey, go get it. You know what I mean? Like, and it's a good, it's a funny example, but and I say that having two dogs that would literally lick the guy to death. Yeah. But, uh, but that, that's what I mean. It's, it's a function of knowing when to let the athlete go and push and providing them safe opportunities to do so. Right. The bench press is going to be an, a movement that, I mean, it doesn't, it contributes maybe 20% to your total realistically, right? Because we're probably going to squat twice as much as we deadlift in terms of absolute load. And then we're, we're probably going to be in that same, sorry, sorry, yes. We're, we're going we're gonna to squat twice as much as we're going to bench press. And then we're also probably going to deadlift close to twice as much as we deadlift. We deadlift twice as much as we bench press as well. So, you know, if I have two lifts that are contributing 75% of my total or 80% of my total, which lift am I probably going to make the concessions in training? I'm probably going to make the concessions in the bench press. Unless you're like Yuri Belkin and you just don't have any weaknesses and your bench is like 550 and you weigh like 80 pounds. 
Well, he he only benches squats and deadlifts. Yeah, he, he like benches. Ben, sorry, he benches. He close grip benches. He squats. He high bar squats, and he deadlifts sumo and conventional. That's it. Those are the only exercises he does. Yeah, yeah. I find that's pretty common. Like I remember even when uh, when I was in Ontario, um, Sean from from Fortis. He was like yeah. super nice. So I went out there, and I was like fairly new, and he he invited me to dinner because um, I. I missed the Milanichev uh, seminar here, but then I found out that they had it there. So I attended it there and then they all had like dinner after and he invited me out. And so it was like me, him, Omar, uh, uh, Omar Isaf, and then yep. Joel, and Killian and, and Andre. And we were all talking about like the, uh, like his program, whatever. And he's like, yeah, I just squat bench and deadlift. And it's like, that's all I do. And I'm just like, Oh, okay. It's like a pretty common practice over there. It's like, everyone's just like really, really specific. But then, but at that rate, you have to understand that that's what he's doing now. That's not oh, what yeah, he did when he was coming up, right? Yeah. As yeah. you as you get into the upper echelon of of strength, the level of specificity required to get your strength to move in in that upward trajectory, you need to allocate as much adaptive reserve to the specific work as you can, right? So you fuck all the rest, right? Maybe the only assistance work you're doing is like rehab for your shoulders and hips. Right, you squat bench, deadlift, do a few bend pull aparts and external rotations. You know, a little bit of uh, you know hip cars, and then that's like that's your training. But I'm like I'm gonna say this, and it has nothing to do with nothing to do with like lifting the most amount of weight possible. But like I want to fucking look good. Like I want to look like I lift. I like doing assistance work because I like building muscle and having a body that looks like it lifts the weights it looks just doing squat bench and deadlift. That's why those, like, if you looked, if you saw Yuri Belkin on the street, you'd be like, Oh, that's a pretty thick guy. He looks like a normal human being. Yeah. Yeah. It's honestly ridiculous. Whereas if you look like a guy, I mean, not to, you know, dust my own shoulder off, like you stand <laughs> me me beside Yuri Belkin. I definitely look like I'm stronger than Yuri Belkin. I'm not even close, but I don't know. I think that yeah. there's something to be said for, are you treating it like a sport in which case they're doing it properly? Or are you doing this for other reasons and you happen to be strong? Like, I mean, even yeah. Dan Bell's doing assistance work and he's the strongest person on the planet. Yeah. Very yeah, little assistance work, but he still does it it's kind of interesting because I find it always kind of waxes and wanes for me. Like, I guess what I classify as variation and I mean, even something like using, going from a belted squat to no belt. Like I, I feel like at that point, that's, that's enough variation to cause like a novel stimulus for a lot of people, you know? And, and I feel like as you go up that scale of, of like level of experience, a lot of those things tend to make more of an impact than, if you're a novice, right? Like you basically you can do anything and it's just going to work. But um, I agree with that for sure. Talking about, uh, cause I know you mentioned like getting your, your low back beat up. Um, I know that when I first start lifting with, with athletes and I kind of get them to a better position on the bench press where they can actually use a lot of their power and really gain a lot of stability from, from their foot position on the ground and, and their leg drive. The first thing they start complaining about is, Oh, my back hurts. Right. Yeah. And so I have to coach them a lot on like breathing and creating proper pressure in through from their hips into their trunk. And so they get more thoracic extension, but can you just kind of go over like 
all of the things that you focus on to, to make sure that you don't get that, that pain when you're benching. Cause that, I guess I would also suggest you probably have a power leakage through your trunk. Yeah. So it usually means you, you're not squeezing the glutes or you're not able to get the knee in the right position over the foot. So like the knees caving in or something like that. The other piece is that so many people, when they bench press, think about breathing and bracing through their trunk, like through their abdominal cavity. You don't need to do that. Your abdominal cavity isn't supporting any load, right? So we want to create expansion through the rib cage. So to get that rib cage big, that thoracic, that thoracic spine extended, and to expand that rib cage to, to reduce range of motion, what we're also doing when we breathe into the chest is we're creating pressure. Pressure equals stability. So instead of breathing into the belly and trying to brace the midsection, what happens when you brace the midsection? You pull the ribs to the pelvis. Well, if I'm pulling the ribs to the pelvis, I'm creating a compressive force, but I'm already creating a compressive force by pushing into my back. So you're kind of, you're compressing that lumbar spine even more. So a lot of the time that causes the thoracic spine not to be able to be an extension as much as we need it to. So that person who's having lower back problems is typically getting lumbar extension and not thoracic extension. So what, what I do to coach that is I'll say, squeeze your ass and take your big breath into your chest. Once that happens, that rib cage opens up, that thoracic spine extends. And not only that, we've also reduced range of motion. Yeah, I find that the breathing, that's actually a really good point because that's probably not something I cue as much as is the, the breathing on the bench press. That's something I focus a lot more on and like the squat and the deadlift, whereas I tend to say like, you know, chest up and like knees out and squeeze your ass and shit like that a little bit more. But that, that I feel like that's definitely a really good cue as well. Cause I don't think a lot of people really pay attention to it. You know, a lot of it's big kind chest, of uh, big chest, big chest, get that yeah. chest, expand yeah. that chest as big as you can. It's a game changer for stability in the upper body. Yeah. I, I, I remember hearing that from uh, I think Greg Panora a long time ago. We were just kind of chatting off air, whatever he was on my podcast, like ages ago. And uh, that was one of the things that he was saying. And I noticed that made a really big difference, like just as a cue, exactly like you said, you say, you know, lift your chest up as the bar is lowering and like 80 of the problems just fix themselves on their own. Yeah. Um, <coughs> so can you just chat a little bit about uh, some of the considerations like influencing exercise selection, uh, training frequency, loading, deloads, frequency, stuff like that. And we talked a little bit about that for, uh, for small female athletes, but. Yeah. So, I mean, the considerations are, are going to be the same for the squat, the bench and the deadlift in terms of like population factors, like age, gender, sex, things like that. I find, you know, with the bench press, because it makes up such a smaller portion of the total uh, it's going to be the one where more concessions are made. So you'll likely see more variation in the lifts uh, to accommodate low bar squatting, uh, to accommodate lumbar loading through, through the deadlift as well. Um, so looking at, am I able to do enough work in this benching movement within two training days? If not, okay, then we need to split the volume and do a third day. Um, if we need a fourth day, we need a fourth day. I, I personally believe that that's a bit overkill, especially if it's a low bar squatter, they're going to run into a lot of problems, but then looking at, okay, uh, are we able to stay healthy or do we have sore elbows, sore shoulders, um, things of that nature? 
Are we getting any pec tendinopathies and things like that? Are we still able to low bar squat? These are all things that are going to be considerations for volume and exercise selection. Exercise selection is definitely going to be indicative of where are the weak points? Where are the breakdowns? Does this person need more muscle? Do they need more skill? Um, that's how we will divvy it up. So a good way to do that is if you're going to have four pressing movements within a week, split it half and half. Like do, So you're going to do two specific movements. Uh, one will be competition specific. The other will be a specific variation for, for skill. And then the other two will be, you know, more hypertrophy based muscle movements. If the lifter is, you know, large enough and more and needs more technical work, then they can get more specific in their assistance. Um, my biggest piece of advice when do, when looking at exercise selection and considerations and that sort is aim at something. So make a decision use it, see what the response is, see how the person is, is progressing forward and then jump back in and say, are we moving forward? If yes, why? If no, why? And then make those changes if required or just rinse and repeat. It's really like, I wish I could give you like a hard, fast rule on like what to do, but it's going to be different for everybody. Like, even, even if the person is, you know, a very proficient bench presser and a great squatter and they suck at deadlifting, if you start having them deadlift more and their back is more sore, that has to be, that has to come out of the, the you only have so much money in your bank account to spend on exercise. So exercise selection and, you know, variation allows you to spend your money in a little bit of a different way. Right. So like a competition bench is going to be pretty expensive. Well, but if I make that competition bench a four second tempo and I can't use as much load, well, that costs less money. Right. So if you think about it in that regard and you allocate X amount of dollars for your bench press training, X amount of dollars for your squat training, X amount of dollars for your deadlift training, then it becomes really easy to assign priority within your training week. Now, as far as peaking goes, um, obviously there's a variety of different strategies that, uh, that you might use for, for people, but just if there are just some general kind of guidelines that you've noticed totally. for, for bench versus uh, squatting or deadlifting, what might those be? So typically I will have my lifters take their last heavy bench press about 10 days out from a competition ish 10 to 14 depending on how strong the person is and how large they are then they'll take uh, some submaximal singles the monday of the meet so assuming a saturday meet on the monday on the wednesday they'll do a couple very light sets of three and then they'll go into the meet on on sa saturday so as we go into the meet we'll be more specific in our in our movements but the volumes will undulate so you might do two weeks so we'll say three weeks out, you might hit a heavy bench on the, on the Monday, a lighter bench on the Thursday, two weeks out, you're hitting a heavy bench on the Monday, a lighter bench on the Thursday. And then the, the week of the meet, you hit a sub-maximal, but still quite heavy lift on the Monday, something around an opener. And then on the Wednesday, you might do a little bit of, a little bit of volume, like a three by three at 60%. And then you go into the meet on the weekend. 
that can be something where, you know, that's, that's a less advanced lifter, a more advanced lifter. You just push that back. So they do their opener 10 days out. They do their heaviest lift 14 days out. And then, you know, seven or five days out, they do submaximal triples. They do some more submaximal triples a few days out, but the vault, the, the intensity drops, you might go like 180, 70, 60 for a more advanced lifter, or you might go, uh, sorry, for a less advanced lifter, then you might go 100, uh, 90, 70, 80, 60. Like as you keep that kind of undulation of, of intensities going as you decay fatigue, but the volumes remain very, very small. You can, you can take a, a, a heavy bench much closer to a meet than you can a heavy squat or deadlift for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely uh, less absolute load. And then you're not trashing your entire body. Yeah. I suppose there's no axial loading. So that makes sense. Um, awesome. So did you have anything, I guess, that you wanted to maybe just leave as kind of a, a closing statement? Uh, no, I think, I think the bench press is, uh, it's a very nuanced movement. And I think the considerations made for grip width and, uh, and foot position are really important to understand. Uh, as long as you keep in mind the kind of a more principled approach of these are the body positions that I'm looking for and being a bit flexible with how those are uh, manipulated and displayed you can, that, that's why there are so many varied performances of the bench press, right? If, if there's a lot of different ways to execute the lift and there's a lot of people setting world records benching in different, in different ways, which is actually pretty cool to see. Yeah, totally. So awesome. where can people find you? Uh, so you can find me on Instagram at Paulo need or at master athletic performance. Uh, my website is www.masterathletic.com. You can find coaches corner, www.coachescorneru.com or on Instagram at coachescorneru. Uh, we have a 14-day free trial right now and our membership is only $34.99 a month for three lectures a week and a live Q&A. So a lot of, a lot of value on that, uh, on that platform. Awesome. All right. Thanks Appreciate so much it. for jumping on, Paul. Thanks, man. Have a good day. You too, brother.